I'd invite you to get your Bibles out, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, we're in a core group season now, and so I hope you're interacting with the core guide and get that out so you can take some notes to uh, discuss what you might have questions about or what strikes you about this morning's message. Um, I had the privilege of uh, driving to Wisconsin and back this past week. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> There's a lot of ground between here and there. It is vast, big sky country. Uh, we got to see a, a lot of ground. <laughs> it, some of it was rolling, some of it was just flat. But I did really like the golden-colored trees mixed in with all the green pine along the way. Um, what really caught my attention were some of the billboards. You know, there's a lot of billboards between here and there. One of them about the middle of Minnesota has kind of haunted me. Uh, it was a politically driven billboard and it said something to the effect of vote for our candidate because they are really good at practicing their ABCs. Hmm. So that's, that's what catches your attention right away. But then, then there's the tagline. That, that was just kind of like a knife. The ABCs, you know what that stands for? Anything but Christianity. That's on the billboard. Vote for this candidate because they stand for anything but Christianity. Now, I'm not going to stand here this morning and unpack and rehearse a list of all the things that I think could possibly be worse than Christianity, but it did get me thinking. Uh, a campaign driven on this was just a little bit shocking to me, and I want to ask the question, why? Why does this billboard exist? Why do people feel this way? What, maybe more introspectively for us is, what brought them to the point of thinking that this was true? I mean, what hurt do they have in their life that they've experienced because of a church or somebody who proclaimed to be a follower of Jesus, that it has turned them so soured against Christianity that, that they would build a campaign off of that particular slogan? And, and then I remembered, you know, I read all sorts of articles and, and books, and it doesn't surprise me that that showed up as a billboard because it's a growing, uh, I think, feeling in our society. I remember a book, I think it was maybe back in 2007 or so, it's a book called Unchristian, uh, written by uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, and they were writing this book uh, based on research by the Barna Group. Uh, the Barna Group had, they had done this a survey of hundreds, thousands of, of young adults in our culture, and they weren't really asking them about specifics of Christianity, like doctrine and, and so forth and things like that. What, what they were asking these young adults about was, what are your perceptions of Christians? And so this is, these are some of the statistics that they came up with. This is back in 2007, and my, my gut tells me that it's probably even a little bit more pronounced today than it was in 2007. 91% of these young adults felt that Christians were anti-homosexual. 87% felt Christians were judgmental. 85% felt Christians were hypocritical. 75% thought Christians were too political. 70% thought Christians were just insensitive and plain old mean-spirited. I mean, those are all over 50%, right? That's a pretty significant study. 
And I would say that they're dead on accurate from conversations that, that I've had with people who either don't go to church or are disaffected from, from church in general. These are the things that, some of the things that have pushed them away or dri- driven them away. And, and so there's a couple ways that we can respond to information like this. Um, one response is you just get angry. And you keep building a wall of division between us and them. So you, you could get angry and just um, you know, retreat even further. Or you could take it as a challenge. I could take it as a challenge to, to do some really difficult thinking, to, to have some really hard conversations. Um, perhaps even change the way that we treat others who don't share our beliefs or our opinions or our morals or our convictions. We can get angry and bury our head in the sand or maybe we can do the difficult heavy lifting of maybe trying to address it and, and get better as people, as followers of, of Jesus. So, so today, um, we're launching into a our fall worship series. It'll take us all the way through October. And it's a a series called Shark Busters. You see a little shark fish on the front of of your bulletin. Um, I want to look at ways that we can tame an overzealous faith. Sometimes our faith can get a little sideways. Um, Maybe we start off with good intentions, but something happens, and, and maybe we just come across as hypocritical, judgmental, and so forth. And so I want to spend October talking about different ways that, um, that we sometimes get it wrong as Christians and focus our attention on, well, what is it that we could do to maybe get it right and turn some of these percentages that we read, uh, lower those, Give the people around us, our neighbors, our friends at school and in the workplace, a reason to be compelled or inspired or interested in this person, Jesus, that, that we know. I think that I'm on pretty safe ground in saying that Christianity was never meant to be predatorial. And sometimes the way that Christians act it's like we swim around like that shark and we just take bites out of people. And that's really what I want to at least start the conversation on. I want to you know, instigate conversations in your core group and inspire your thinking to, to open yourself and say, is this me? Is this us? Is this who we have become? So today... Um, I wanted to, I, there was all sorts of texts that came to mind, but the one that I, the one that I settled on was some instructions that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. So if, if you have your Bibles, would you stand with me? Uh, I want to look at a few verses in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is kind of like an introductory message for this particular series. And, and so I thought that these verses on what Scripture is for and how we are to use Scripture might be helpful as we begin this series. So here's what Paul says to Timothy. I'm going to start reading in verse 14, and then we're going to focus most of our attention today on 15, 16, and 17. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true. For you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. You, you can be seated. Scripture, and we look at verse 15 here. Paul starts off and he says, Scripture gives us wisdom for salvation. Uh, it points us, the purpose of Scripture is to point us to Jesus. And the Scriptures that Paul was talking about in his day would be what we refer to as the Old Testament. So if you read through the Old Testament, Paul says that the balance of it, all of it, will point you towards the person of Jesus that we read about and learn about in the New Testament. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, I don't think that he even imagined that what he was writing would end up in, in our Bibles. When he talks about Scripture, he, he, he's talking about the Old Testament, and he says that it points to Jesus. And then Jesus came along. We read in the Gospels, uh, John chapter 5, Jesus is a... Uh, He's in a crowd, and, and he's kind of responding to some religious professionals, religious teachers, who they, they were kind of getting after him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And you don't do that. They were chastising him, and, you know, and they thought he was a heretic because he kept saying that um, God was his father, and, and you just didn't do that either. So, you know, they were wagging their finger at him, and and they didn't like it. And Jesus, he says, you just missed something completely. So John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says to these Pharisees and these religious people, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. In other words, you're looking for life in words, in the scriptures that you have. And, and he goes on to say, but the scriptures point to me. So yes, you can find life in the scriptures because they point to me, and yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. So Jesus shows up, God in flesh. And the people who study the scriptures the most totally missed him. So Jesus tells us, hey, all this this book points to me. Paul writes to Timothy, everything that's in this book points to the person Jesus. It gives you the wisdom that you need to be introduced to a relationship with Jesus. So that's the first thing that Paul says Scripture is to be used for, to introduce us to Christ. The second thing, he, he goes on, and, and we're in uh, verse 16 now, and the first part of 16, it says that God inspired Scripture to teach us the truth. God inspired these words. Now, now it's interesting when you look at the word for inspire. There's all sorts of scholarly debate on what that means, but let me give it to you this way. Paul made up the Greek word that we use to translate inspire. It's the only place in all of Scripture that this word is used, and you don't find this word in any other Greek writing of the same time period. Paul made up this word. He took two Greek words and he jammed them together. The first one that he used was theo, for God, and the second word was noustos, for air or wind or breath, and he shoved them together, and so kind of literally when it says God inspired Scripture, it's kind of like this is God air. This is God breath. God breathed out these words. So I think that it's a fair translation for us to say that God inspired these words, that God breathed life into these words, right? And so we have this picture, and as Christians, we believe that God is still alive and active so if he's alive and active, you could say that God is still breathing, right? So every time we open up the words of Scripture, God is still in the business of breathing new life into these words. Every time we open up and read it, God breathes life into them so that it can affect change and inspire us. God inspired these words. And through his word, 
through his breath, God teaches us what it means to follow him. That God created us, and part of being in a relationship with, with him is learning to trust that he, as our creator, might know something about how we ought to live. That he might even know better than, than we know ourselves. And Scripture gives us uh, these boundaries that we can live within. And it's a freeing existence when you know that there are boundaries and you know that it's our Creator that put those into place and, and maybe He just knows what He's talking about. And uh, God isn't a killjoy who is out there to try and to steal your joy and make sure you don't have any fun and fulfillment in your life. God wants your devotion 100%, and He wants you to live in peace, and He wants you to experience joy, and He wants you to experience love, and He wants you to share this love with other people. And Scripture teaches us how to do that. That's the first part of verse 16. That's the good part of verse 16. Let's say that's the the not-so-painful part of verse 16. But Paul didn't stop with 16a. He had to go on and write 16b, which says that, uh, and Scripture is used to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Ouch. That can sting a little bit sometimes when we are called to the carpet on poor behaviors or, or sin that, that we have loose in our lives. If we allow Scripture, I think a lot of us come at Scripture and we come at it as a book to interpret. Let me tell you, that's the wrong way to approach Scripture. Don't go to Scripture trying to interpret it. Go to Scripture and allow Scripture to interpret your life. That's the way that it ought to go. That we can lift this book up and God, he, he kind of evaluates us through the lens of Scripture, and, and it goes back that way as well. And so, you know, we don't have to spend, I mean, it's good to study Scripture. That's fantastic. Don't hear me wrong. But first come at Scripture as a way of interpreting your life. See, when we do that, it's going to call us out. And that's where it gets a little bit painful for some of us. When we read something in Scripture, and then, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, I just treated so-and-so like that, and then God breathed these words to me today and made them come alive, and wow, I need to go apologize. I need to go make that right, because it was totally inappropriate. Scripture is going to refute errors in our theology and in our living. It, it will help us make in-course adjustments along the way when we allow it to interpret us. It's kind of like, you know, if I take my glasses off, I've told you this before, I'm blind as a bat. I can't, I mean, I see you all out there, but it's like nothing is clear at all. But I put the corrective lenses on, and everything becomes clear. There's more clarity to what I see now when I put glasses on. And so if we stumble through life without, you know, spending time in, in God's words that are alive, it's like stumbling through life without glasses on for me. If you have perfect eyesight, come up with your own metaphor. But this one worked for me. <laughs> but without scripture, we don't have a clear picture. And when we spend time in the word, it's like putting corrective lenses in front of your eyes. It helps bring clarity. And let me tell you this. If you don't have, if you've never had to have glasses, bless you. I'm jealous. <laughs> but there are some times, and I'm not recently, but when I was younger and my eyes were changing more rapidly, when I got a new pair of glasses and I put them on, I put the new prescription on, it was painful for a while because it forced my eyes to do work that they hadn't been doing. And sometimes, I think that's a good picture of Scripture too, is that, you know, sometimes we start reading this and you're like, oh, that, that's going to hurt a little bit if I have to make those changes. You're right. It's not always easy. But it teaches us what is true and what is right. And Scripture has this effect that it will point out 
what's wrong in our lives and places where we do need adjustments. So when we come to Scripture and personally, and, and when we use Scripture publicly, how we use what we learn in the Bible is really important. The Bible is designed, first, what was it? To introduce people to Jesus. To introduce you and I to the risen, living Savior. That was the first purpose. From beginning to end, this book, it's a long love story about how the creator God, Yahweh, wants to be in relationship with humans, with you and with me. And time and again, people push him away. But he keeps relentlessly pursuing us even to the point where he showed up in the flesh and the church people rejected him, didn't recognize him, killed him. But the story doesn't end six feet deep with a tragic death. God loves humanity so much. He pursued us so much that he rose Jesus from the dead so that we could be redeemed and saved and that all who would call on Jesus would not perish but would be saved. That's what this book is about, first and foremost. It's a love story of how God pursues us and it's a way to introduce people to this person of Jesus. But it goes further than that because sometimes... I think that Christians use this book like a bludgeon. You get out your 10-pound King James Version Bible, and some people just beat other people over the head with it, trying to convince them that that beating is good for them and that they just need to shape up and fly right. How we use Scripture is extremely Important. And I want you to notice something about this passage. Uh, look, look really closely at it with me. Who's Paul writing to? Timothy. How many people is Timothy? One, right? Paul wasn't at the time thinking he was writing part of the Bible. We have the privilege of overhearing instructions that Paul left for his protege, Timothy, to an individual. It seems to me that um, if that's the case, his encouragement to Timothy is let the book do internal work on you. He doesn't have any instructions right there about how we are to present it to other people. It first must do that work in us. Let the Holy Spirit have the correcting influence. That may not be our job at all. Our job may be to cultivate and develop a loving relationship one in which at some point you could share, you know what, this book has really impacted my life in these kinds of ways. That may be a more helpful approach than you're living in sin and you're going to hell. I was thinking about this in a couple ways. I don't remember, maybe the third grade we had a substitute teacher for a period of time. And I loved, uh, I think it was third grade, I, I loved my third grade teacher. For the moment right now, her name totally slipped my mind, but that, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> she was awesome. <laughs> she took the time to get to know every one of her students. We felt very comfortable in her presence. And she was able to package up what we were supposed to learn in smaller bits so that, as third graders, 
we could understand them and learn. And once in a while, we didn't always get it right. But, you know, she had invested time and energy in the relationship, and so when our paper came back with red marks on it, we took it a little bit easier, like, wow, she really cares about us. Or if we were, you know, as third graders sometimes do, uh, getting a little out of control, and she had to whip us into shape. Uh, we, we, we took it okay because we trusted in the relationship. But she had to go away for a little bit of time and we had this substitute teacher who came in who didn't have any relationship with us at all. And this person who came in was more interested in correction than in relationship. And so... When this teacher came across as harsh, it hurt. Because we didn't really feel like that person cared for us as individuals. We knew that they cared that we followed the rules correctly and we got all our homework right. But it didn't really seem like they cared about us as people. So it wasn't likely that we were going to seek out help from this substitute teacher because there was absolutely no relationship. I was also thinking of it, uh, had a conversation this week with somebody who was observing um, some behavior in a, a grandchild. And uh, grandpa spent a lot of time, you know, holding the grandson and playing with him and, you know, just investing in that little one. And the little one got a little out of control. Grandma came in and smacked down, you know, hey, this is not how we behave. Back off, Grandma, it'll be okay. Well, he needs to learn this. And she wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong when she said that. He did need to learn this. But it didn't come across very well because Grandma hadn't invested the same kind of time like Grandpa had and just snuggling and playing, pushing trucks around. There was relationship there. Grandma came in and, and the grandson didn't know exactly how to respond because he didn't feel like grandma had invested that time and he didn't know how to take the correction even though it was good for him. Who, who do you think that little one is more likely to run up to and jump into their lab? Grandma or grandpa? Probably grandpa. Because maybe grandma has scared him a little bit. Sorry, grandma's in the room. That's just how the story went. <laughs> do, you, do you suppose that maybe that's the difference between how Jesus would treat somebody and how Christians sometimes treat people? When we use the scripture to beat people over the head and moralize them, it only seems like we're interested in them following a set of rules, most of which they don't even prescribe to at this point. Jesus did it the completely different way. He came to earth and he, he hung out with people where they were. He, he listened to their stories. He got to know them. And you know what? He introduced them to himself and, and to God. And he got around to the correction part. But they loved him and they trusted the relationship that they had with him. So it was much more effective. And sometimes I, I just, I'm saddened by the ways that, that we end up using Scripture and when we, when we act like this and we misuse Scripture in this way, I think we start acting like a group of people that we read about in the Bible that Jesus had his most strong words for. In fact, the only people that Jesus ever passed judgment on in the New Testament were the religious folks. 
We refer to them as Pharisees. And when we read about the Pharisees, we conjure up these images of villains, and somebody could cue up the imperial march, dum, 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 here come the Pharisees, you know, these puffed up, arrogant, egotistical, narrow-minded, spiritual losers, that's this picture that we have in our mind of, of these Pharisee people, we just assume that Pharisees equals bad. But they started off as very well-meaning people. These were exemplary folk. They loved God. They loved his word. They studied it. They memorized long portions of it. People put them up on a pedestal as, you know what, if you want to live a holy life that's pleasing to God, you better model it after a Pharisee because they really did the discipline and, and were diligent in trying to practice that. Somewhere along the way, they got a little sideways in that. And self-righteousness came in and they became judgmental and, and hypocritical. And, and Jesus, he just calls them out. I think of one, one passage in particular. You can flip over to Matthew if your Bibles are still open. Um, Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is like a long tirade that Jesus has. He's not even talking to the Pharisees at this point. He's talking to um, the crowds and to his disciples. And he says, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. So, so far, so good. But then anytime a but shows up in Scripture, watch out. Don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside and what would Jesus do bracelets and they wear robes with extra-long tassels and they put Jesus fish on their, the, the back of their ox carts and, well, that's in my translation here. You don't have that in yours? Hmm. Hmm. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and they love to be called rabbi. And over in verse 23, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Can you, from your herb gardens, how many of you grow dill or anything like that? You know, if, if you have a small crop of dill like this, and you're, you're kind of grinding that down, I mean, how do you tithe like 10% on that? I mean, that's pretty tedious, isn't it? Jesus is calling them out, and they care about getting it perfectly right but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. You forget about justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes. Give to the Lord what is the Lord's, but do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you instead swallow a camel. This is Jesus talking here, by the way. Pretty strong words. Verse 25, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean and polish the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. He goes on, most of chapter 23 is Jesus talking, teaching the crowds and his disciples about the Pharisees. He's got some pretty harsh words for them. Their downfall centered on self-justification and self-importance. And Jesus, he condemned, he condemned these Pharisees for their pride and their judgmentalism for their lack of compassion and lack of mercy and their, just, their, their failure to, to love other people. 
He called them out on their hypocrisy. See, these folks, they thought God, God was, that God's primary rule, um, Jesus taught that God's primary rule was love. The Pharisees had flipped that around. Jesus said God isn't interested, first and foremost, in condemning sinners, but drawing them into relationship. God's primary concern is not rules, but people. In an effort to do the right thing, sometimes Christians just get it wrong. We, we slide down this slippery slope and we end up acting like and exhibiting behaviors that look more like Pharisees than like Jesus. We start off with good intentions. We start out trying to do the right thing, but we end up acting in ways that are totally opposed to God. And we harbor these attitudes and actions that end up betraying us. And we act in ways that are opposed to God when our attitudes justify ourselves more than they reflect the heart and the love of Jesus. Now, I've observed this in myself and in others. I'm, I try to be as observant a person as I can. And uh, so I was trying to jot down uh, ways that Christians sometimes act like Pharisees and we don't really even know it. So I was making a list, and I came across uh, one of the top ten lists. A pastor named uh, uh, Kerry Newhoff, he, he wrote a, an article, and, and it was basically called Ten Things That Pharisees Say Today. Huh, somebody else was thinking about this too. So I want to I read you or share a couple of these with you. And I would say, as a word of caution, uh, as you listen to these don't think about who these phrases remind you of. Think about how they reflect your own attitude. Okay? You might have heard this one. If they knew the Bible as well as I did, their life would be better. Part of that statement's true. I, I agree that people's lives can be changed for the better if they spend time getting to know the Word of God. But it has absolutely nothing to do with our level or non-level of, of knowing the Scripture. That's just a plain old arrogant statement. An assumption that sometimes we make as Christians and it kind of bleeds out. And then number two, you shouldn't hang around with people like that. And, and we wonder why the church isn't growing in some places. Do you think it might be because we only cultivate relationships with people who are Christians? I mean, how can we be the salt of the earth? How can, I mean, if, if you're salt, if you, if you want to put salt on a steak, does it do any good to leave it in the container? No. For you to get the flavor of that, you have to shake it out. Kind of goes along with another one. Uh, this, is, this statement is, I'm simply more comfortable with people from my church or Christians than I am with people who don't go to church. Maybe this is why some churches are, and some Christians are ineffective at reaching unchurched people. You know, Jesus said to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel, did he not? Well, let me tell you that he might not mean Africa. He might mean a tavern down on tower. See, when you define ends of earth as somewhere that's geographically remote from where you reside, I think you missed part of the gospel. The ends of the earth are taking the gospel to where it's not already. Going to the ends of earth means you go and find people who are far away from the gospel. That's what the ends of the earth mean. Yes, going to Africa is fantastic. When Rob North shared with us two weeks ago about what's going on over at African Nazarene University and how they're inspiring their students to serve their communities, that's fantastic. I love it. 
But don't, I, we shouldn't let our definition of the ends of the earth only reflect that. It's taking the gospel to where it's not already. Number three. Uh, sure, I have a few issues, but that's between me and God. You know what? If you pretend to have this nice, neat, tidy life that's free from issues, people are just going to think you're fake. Because they know better. Nobody's perfect. We all know that. Jesus called the Pharisees out for appearing to be perfect on the outside while inside they were just rotting and flawed. And when we act in the same ways, we're alienating people from us and, and pushing them away. And, and uh, I think that we're called to be transparent, that we ought to be vulnerable and, and honest with people. And when you let people know that you don't have it all together, even as a follower of Jesus, that will probably inspire some people. Because they're going to wonder, well, why are you interested? And then you might have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus, to the scriptures that point to him. This one hurts a little bit. They just need to work harder. You know, when you drive by somebody hanging cardboard on the side of the road, they just need to work harder. Kind of sounds like, eh, why don't they just get a job? When we allow our relative success in the world to serve as a basis of how we judge other people, we totally miss the point of mercy and compassion. Jesus says we should be known to others by our love and our compassion because it looks like him. There's one more. More people need to stand up for Christian values. You heard that one? Be careful with this one. The first Christians, and many Christians today around the globe, are living out their faith in a world that does not share their values. But rather than fight and try to moralize people, they lay down their life for them. I think that we ought to live out our Christian values. I think that we need to be positive examples that are authentic uh, to Scripture. Uh, we need to do that, absolutely, 100%. We need to live that out in front of other people. But I think that maybe we need to be less concerned. Hear me right here. Maybe we need to be less concerned about holding non-Christians to a standard that they don't believe in. Because when we hold them to our standards, and they don't believe in our standards, it's, it, it's like a brick wall. Develop the relationship first, and then as you introduce them to this person of Jesus and to the scriptures, Jesus can take care of that. He can be trusted with all of that. We don't have to worry about that. If we live a Jesus life in front of other people, it's going to draw people to Christ. And what bothers me is um, I think that the Pharisee in many of us is killing the mission and the effectiveness of the church. And I'm not talking you know, in a local setting here. I'm talking about globally. That the Pharisee in many Christians is part of the reason that the church is being ineffective in many places around the globe. It's driving people away. It leads to the, st the statistics and the billboard that I shared with you at, at the very beginning. Because nobody wants to swim in a pond where sharks are swimming around, taking a bite out of them. It's like hugging a porcupine. How many of you have known a jerk for Jesus? Yeah, everybody's known a jerk for Jesus. People who thought that they were advancing the kingdom, that they were taking the gospel to the masses, but they were really kind of embarrassing Jesus and themselves. I mean, these are people who bark at other people. These are the people who are the moral police. These are the people with the turn or burn sign everywhere that you look around. These are the people who are obnoxious and abrasive. They have bad breath and bad theology. 
That's a jerk for Jesus. Now, hear me correctly. I believe that we are to have a passionate faith. Absolutely. That we are to be zealous for the Lord. But I also think that we, be, can, that we can become too overzealous in the process. And one of the becoming too overzealous, it's one of the shadow sides of our faith in Jesus is getting carried away and becoming overzealous. And, and what I mean by that, it's, uh, it's having a spiritual passion for the Lord that doesn't line up with the Word of God. When our passion for the Lord exceeds or doesn't take into account all of Scripture, that is becoming overzealous when we push that out on other people. When Jesus showed up, God in the flesh, it was the church folk who considered themselves God's biggest fans. They worshipped him. They praised his name. Uh, they, they knew the Bible. It was those people who rejected him, who pushed him away, who, who didn't want anything to do with him. They, they killed him. That's passion gone wrong. It was passion that wasn't, spiritual zeal that wasn't aligned with the scriptures that they were memorizing. I mean, I remember back in my youth a few years ago I always liked it when missionaries from other faiths knocked on my door not for good reasons I, I was an argumentative jerk and, you know I had read up and I had made a list of all sorts of questions that were designed to trap them I was just mean-spirited. I didn't care about them as people. I cared about winning an argument. I don't think that looks like Jesus. I, I had to take that one before the Lord and ask for forgiveness and apologize because my behavior, while in my mind I thought I was doing right and I'm going to introduce these people to Jesus because I'm going to undermine what they believe and I'm going to you know, slide in Jesus here, I just did it in a totally wrong way. That is spiritual zeal that doesn't line up with Scripture. See, when we do that, when we have an overzealous faith, even if we have good intentions, it ends up sabotaging the work of the Lord. And it's very hard to see in ourselves. It's really hard for, our, it's hard for us to diagnose but it can be very deadly and hurtful to people. So if you're a Christian and you're here this morning, I want you to hear this. Maybe you started off with good intentions but ended up in a place that you didn't want to go. Maybe self-righteousness and being judgmental or hypocritical snuck into your attitudes. And maybe you don't realize it. But maybe your behavior looks more like the Pharisees than it does of Jesus. You, you might be one of those sharks that's swimming around taking bites out of people. But I want to be really blunt with us because I'm included in this mix. Self-righteousness will eat you alive and will cause you to abuse other people. And you're not going to think anything of it because you think that you're doing the right thing. And so you might be sitting here thinking that I'm preaching to somebody else in this room or somebody else who's not in this room. And you may thought of gone through your mind, go get him, pastor. This is good stuff. I, you know, so-and-so should really hear this one. Let me just say, as a word of caution, you might want to reevaluate yourself. Please don't put your guard up and say, this doesn't apply to me. Because unless you're Jesus, at least some of it applies to you. And if you're here this morning, maybe you're just thinking about this whole Christianity thing, or maybe at some point you've been hurt by a Christ follower or a church. Maybe somebody, some shark is 
taken a bite out of you. They thought they were doing the right thing by pointing out all of your weaknesses and, and your sin before they even learned your story. I just want to say I'm sorry that that's your experience. Because that's behavior that doesn't reflect the Jesus that I know. And my prayer for you is that you would know, that you would come to know the healing grace of Jesus, that you would know his love. That my prayer is that you would be able to look beyond some of his imperfect followers, which is all of us, and see the real deal, that you would see the person of Jesus, despite those who might get in the way. You know, we've just come out of a series, eight weeks we spent on the fruit of the Spirit. And verse 17 in our text this morning is good news. It says, God uses Scripture to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. In this other place, Paul had said, Christians should look like and strive to be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and gentle and generous and faithful and able to exercise self-control. That's when Christians get it right. We have all of the tools necessary to do it right. We have the Holy Spirit who comes with us and is our advocate and speaks to us and, and nudges us to do what is right. So this whole series, it's not, it's not meant to give us all a spanking. The whole series is designed to encourage us, to challenge us to do the hard thinking. To open ourselves before God in his word and look for places that may be blind spots to us at this point. And that is my prayer for all of us, is that as we navigate, as we journey through these coming weeks, and in your core groups that, that we, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed or think that people are trying to tag you off base or find out all your flaws. I think we're here to help each other do better. And it's only going to begin when you let that guard down, when you let that wall down, and you say, you know what? I might get it wrong some of the time, and I, but I really... I really want that fruit of the Spirit to grow in my life. Lord, would you help me grow this fruit? People of God said, amen. I'm going to ask the worship team.